Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, a clinical psychologist who helps millions calm their anxiety and be their authentic selves. She serves on the faculty at Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders, and she's the author of How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Ellen was the founding host of the award-winning podcast, Savvy Psychologist, which was downloaded 15 million times and rose up to the number three overall spot on the iTunes charts and was picked as a best new podcast on iTunes. Her scientifically based zero judgment approach has been featured in New York Magazine, The Guardian, Harvard Business Review, Scientific American, Oprah's Magazine, Real Simple, Business Insider, Psychology Today, and many other media outlets. We're going to be talking with Ellen today about social anxiety and how we can help our teenagers deal with it and be their authentic selves. We're going to talk about what's at the core of social anxiety, why social anxiety can sometimes actually be a good thing, and we're going to take a look at what happens in the teenage brain when kids get into situations that make them anxious. Then we're going to cover some step-by-step approaches parents can use to help teenagers conquer their fears and do the things that scare them so they can live their best life and be their authentic selves. All that and so much more is coming up on the show today. Dr. Hendrickson, thank you so much for being here. So talk to me a little bit about this topic. How does one become an expert on being oneself? That seems like a really interesting thing to to study and to learn about. And I'm curious what got you into that. Sure. So yes, I am a clinical psychologist. And under that umbrella, I am an anxiety specialist. But under that umbrella, social anxiety has a very special place in my heart. So that is my super specialty. And I uh, got into, well, I I got into the idea of writing how to be yourself for just a variety of factors. So one is that, you know, as an anxiety specialist and as, you know, watching myself work with all these clients who, you know, come in with social anxiety, I realized that a lot of the evidence-based techniques, the, the things that really work were inaccessible. They were either in the ivory tower, like they were stuck in research labs, clinical yeah. research labs, or they were stuck in, you know, kind of boutique private anxiety centers, you know, not to knock my own workplace, but I'm in a university affiliated, you know, anxiety specialty center and we don't take insurance, which is problematic, (laughs) but we are dealing with this as it is now. So uh, my goal is to be a bridge. 
I want to take what is known, what works in that ivory tower, in those specialty centers and make them as accessible as possible. And so uh, I, I, I love what you do. I podcasted myself for, for five years. Um, and then writing this book was another big part of trying to just spread the word, just get really good information yeah, yeah. out there to right. people who wouldn't otherwise have immediate access. So for the price of a book or for a free podcast, it's, yep. it's you know. There are great we all, we tools. All deserve the best. The yes, research all, is being done. Exactly. We all deserve the best tools, yes. So you write that kind of at the core of all of this is this idea of avoidance and kind of the double-edged sword of avoidance where it does in the short term, it makes you feel better to uh, just not have to deal with whatever the situation is that kind of seems scary to you or awkward or hard to deal with. Um, and, uh, you know, you get to not have to face down that negative emotion. And so uh, great uh, success, you know, avoidance wins the day. But of course, in the long term, avoidance is disastrous. Um, so why do you think uh, oh, that's such a um, difficult thing. And um, particularly to me, it seems really important during the teenage years, you know, um, as a parent kind of watching for where your teenager might be um, avoiding things and sort of providing that nudge to um, engage with those things. Oh, to, oh, so much to unpack there. The great, great, <laughs> great question. Okay. So I'm glad you started with that because avoidance really is the heart of the matter and not, not even just for social anxiety. Avoidance is the heart of many psychological disorders, yeah. uh, but particularly the anxiety uh, disorders and even, even not even disorders like you know what I call lowercase s social anxiety. Okay, so if we're faced with something that we fear, our anxiety is going to shoot up. That makes sense. You know, yeah. we we get thrown into fight or flight. But if we don't have to deal with that thing, you know, it that our anxiety plummets <laughs> like a stone, and that's highly <laughs> reinforcing. That is like crack. It feels really good. Like, oh, I don't have to do. I don't have to talk to those people. I don't have to give that presentation. I don't have to raise my hand in class. Oh, she didn't call on me. And however, but just like you said, it is disastrous long term. Short term, it provides relief, but then inevitably, another anxiety provoking situation is going to happen again, and blammo, our anxiety shoots up again. And so we end up in this yo-yo pattern of anxiety, avoidance, anxiety, avoidance, anxiety, avoidance. And so what we want to do is you know, not to throw ourselves into terrifying situations, but to, you know, to be cliche, push ourselves out of our comfort zone just a little bit yeah, and right. hang in there and to do the thing, you know, kindly, we can be nice to ourselves as we do the hard thing, but to hang in there and to do the thing. And then our brain recalibrates. And we gather evidence and experience that refutes what I call the two lies of social anxiety. One is that the worst case scenario is bound to happen. Like the worst case scenario is a foregone conclusion. So right. everybody's going to point and laugh or the teacher will say like, you were supposed to know that or just other disastrous things that our brain, right. of course, like immediately latches onto. So that's one. And the second lie of social anxiety is I can't handle it. I can't deal with rolling with the punches. I can't um, handle the you know, blips and bloops that teenage social life is going to inevitably throw at me. And yeah. so as we hang in there and do the thing, like face our fear, uh, then again, our brain recalibrates and says, oh, okay. Well, the last five times I did that, my worst case scenario didn't happen. So maybe that actually won't happen. 
or the last five times I did that, I actually, you know, that wasn't perfect. That was, you know, kind of ungainly or awkward or, you know, but I survived. Maybe I can do that again. And that's how we gain confidence. So we sort of jumped in here, started talking about social anxiety, and there's kind of this, the assumption that it's not good. We don't want that. <laughs> we, you know, uh, we want to be confident sure. and um, rah, rah, and all of these nice and wonderful things, and we don't want the social anxiety. But you actually do point out a little bit here on page 47, you start getting uh, talking about actually the, the ways in which social anxiety is a little bit of a good thing. So how is that possible? And yeah. uh, why do you talk about that? Oh, so it's such good questions. I'm glad you asked that too. Um, so social anxiety is a package deal. So uh. it goes along with, I mean, of course, it's very uncomfortable. Like, you know, it's, it's you know, not great to, you know, be in the laser beam of a socially anxious moment. Right. But it, it goes along with being empathetic, with being pro-social, which means like, you know, uh, being thoughtful, being kind, being considerate. We, there are some kind of weird random things that are in that package deal. We remember faces better, I think, because we're like, you know, attuned and focused on. Yeah, yeah, you're more tuned. Yeah, and, and we're highly conscientious, which is the number one predictor of both objective and subjective success in life. So if I, you know, things you can actually measure and things that are more intangible, like happiness. Yeah. So that, that conscientiousness is is a real heart of social anxiety and you know, at at its core is really good well, you know when it yeah. tips the scales when it you know kind of tips the balance it can turn into perfectionism which we can talk about it can turn into you know kind of caring too much what people think but when we roll that back just a little bit when we kind of turn down the flame a little bit on social anxiety yeah you know turn down caring too much what people think we just get caring about people and that's always a good thing. Yeah. And the uh, opposite of having too low of social anxiety is not a good situation. It's maybe worse because uh, it's not, you know, we can use some of these techniques to talk about in this book and we can dial it down, but um, it's kind of actually maybe harder to just create it out of thin air when it's, when we've got a person who doesn't feel any of it. So. Um, right, right. No, in the book, I talk about how y- you would think like, you know, intuitively the opposite of social anxiety is confidence, but that's not actually true. Mm-hmm. The opposite of social anxiety is psychopathy is being a psychopath, yeah, you know, which right. is, is characterized by uh, fearless dominance and self-centered impulsivity. And, you know, we certainly, we don't need any more psychopaths in this world. So yeah, so the opposite of social anxiety is, is something really not good. There's a study that you talk about in this book and um, we get a bunch of babies, you know, 117 babies, and we bring them in and we start looking at how they respond to a bunch of different things in the lab uh, in terms of just seeing new things and being exposed to new things, having a new person come in and seeing, you know, what do they kind of go run and just play with this new person or are they more kind of wary? And um, they sort of divide the babies into categories based on whether they're more um, the kind of hang back, be cautious kind of baby or the more uh, just j- jump right in, everything's good kind of baby. But then uh, what I thought was really interesting about it is you say they then follow up with these uh, with these kids 13 years later or something like that when they're teenagers. And uh, what they found when they followed up was really interesting. 
what was it about uh, the kids 13 years later that was so fascinating? Yeah, so this is uh, the work of Dr. Cynthia Garcia Cole, and she is uh, an esteemed psychologist now, um, ah, forgive me, I can't remember the name of her university. She is now in Puerto Rico, which is her, uh, her, uh, where she grew up. Okay. And, um, but she spent a you know, long and storied career at Brown University. And, um, and I was privileged to, to be her student um, at one point. I took a class that she was teaching. And so I got to see her work, not only you know, through the pages of a journal, but you know, up, up yeah, close and personal. Right. And so the, the study that you talk about was her dissertation. And so she brought all these 21 month kids, uh, toddlers, you know, into the lab. And yeah, it's like, uh, I was going to say subjected them, but that sounds bad. <laughs> had, had them, you know, had them experience some novel situations, like had them yeah. meet a research assistant as, you know, a new person, had them, you know, join her in some play, had them see a, you know, a robot that the lab had built um, right. just, you know, and wanted to see how they reacted to novelty and how they rolled with the punches. Um, yeah. And so some of those kids, you know, stuck in their mom's lap, you know, didn't want anything to do with this. And some, you know, ran into the room, like, you know, ready to explore. And so the, the, the level of inhibition was, was really different. Now, you would think that the kids who were more reticent, you know, again, stayed in mom's lap, were shy, painfully shy even, yeah. would be in for a tough time. But it, that group, particularly the, the, the shy kind of inhibited kids, you know, as teenagers kind of sorted themselves into two groups. Some of them indeed were, did have some trouble. They were, okay, yeah. you know, had some separation anxiety, had some social anxiety, had some, you know, general, were warriors, whatnot. But um, others, you know, while retaining their, you know, shy and perhaps being wired to be more anxious than the typical typical kid, um, were just fine. You know, they yeah. they were quiet, but they were confident. They you know were doing just fine. And those were the introverts. You know, those were the non-anxious right. introverts. Yeah. And so it is. Genetics is not destiny. Personality is not destiny. Right. Um, I think. There, there's certainly been a, a fantastic and well-deserved, you know, kind of introvert power movement recently. Yeah. Uh, however, you know, like it, introversion is still associated with being more anxious or being more uh, prone to depression and, you know, some not great things, but you can absolutely be a non-anxious introvert. And I think the key there is ironically avoiding avoidance again, doing the things and to be cliche, getting yourself out there and learning, oh, I can do this. Or like, hey, like I can, I can you know, handle what life throws at me. So you write a bit in this book about what is going on inside of the brain during social anxiety. And I found this really interesting because you are writing in here about the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And you're writing about how um, there, we all have this um, natural response from our amygdala when we get into a socially stressful situation. Our brain stem is going, ah, what's, what's happening here? This is scary. Um, but then 
people who are less socially anxious, then their prefrontal cortex kind of kicks in and says, well, wait a minute, this isn't that big of a deal. Um, I, I, I think we can hang, we can chill here. And, um, and I, I thought this was really interesting because this is what a number of people have said is going on in the teenage brain, um, that just in general, that the teenage years is described by neuroscientists as this period where, you know, um, you have this really strong amygdala response, but you haven't really myelinated those paths to the frontal cortex yet. And so um, you're not able to then like inhibit that response. Uh, so I, I just thought there was a really interesting parallel there between social anxiety and just um, adolescence. And I was wondering sort of if you could speak to that or is that then um, kind of social anxiety going to be really emerging a lot during the teenage years or how do those two things kind of relate? Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's another good question. So yeah, so social anxiety typically begins between ages eight and 15. So that is exactly when the teenage brain is getting that upgrade that starts in the back and moves its way to the front. So, you know, it's, I'm, I'm pointing to like the, the back of my head base of my skull right now, you know, it starts in the, basically the brainstem and then works its way up over, you know, over your head towards your forehead. And then like, if you, you know, put your hand on your forehead, like you're checking for a fever, that's your prefrontal cortex. And that is the last part of teenage brain to be upgraded, which unfortunately is also the part of the brain that's responsible for organization and planning ahead and all the yes. things that, you know, that we lament, uh, stereotypically lament with teenagers like, oh, why can't they, why, how did they not see that coming? Or like, why did they not plan for that? But so in social anxiety, again, all the architecture is there. It's just a little slower. And so I, the analogy I use is that, you know, in the face of threat, the you know, more typically wired non-socially anxious brain dispatches a, a fire truck to the scene where the socially anxious brain dispatches a guy on a bicycle with a bucket of water. So it's just slower and like not as adequate a response. And, and, but the good news is that that can be retrained, that, mm. that those, those pathways, if we, if we consciously use them more, so we can, you know, push back cognitively, you know, with our thoughts and beliefs and, you know, kind of questioning the rules in our head or our actions, we can also put action first and, you know, do the thing before we feel ready. We can talk more yeah. about that as well. Um, then our actions can actually change our brain. There are studies showing that anything you do very often, like uh, folks who drive a taxi, have like just amazing spatial, that portion yeah. of their brain is very well-developed. Musicians, like that part of their brain is well-developed. And so, you know, we can't, our brains are, are actually pretty plastic, which is surprising, even, in, you know, even into adulthood, but definitely when we're in that, in those teenage years, it's probably as you know, plastic as it's going to be with the exception yeah. of zero to five. And so we can, we can help that along. We can turbocharge that process by questioning that inner critic, that those, those socially anxious thoughts that keep kind of whispering in our ear yeah. and by not avoiding. have a Mad Lib in this yeah. book that you recommend. <laughs> yes. uh, this is a highly recommended Mad Lib that you include in here. And it's pretty simple. It just says, when blank, it will become obvious that I am blank. Okay. Sure. So yeah. what yeah, yeah. is going on with this? Social anxiety is, okay. So technically social anxiety is if you're being judged. 
But yeah. more than that, okay, and this is, this is the work of Dr. David Moscovich at the University of Waterloo. So he thinks about social anxiety in kind of a different way than the, than the canon, but I think he's really onto something. And he, in talking to him, he said, you know, I have people with social anxiety write to me and say like, that's it, that you got it. You know? And so I think that rings true for people who live with this condition. And so I'm, yeah. you know, and it, it, it rings true for, for me as well that social anxiety, more than just the fear of being judged, is more the fear of being revealed. That in like capital S social anxiety, like disorder, there's this belief that there's something wrong with us, that there's something like insufficient. And my big asterisk, you know, my big disclaimer with clients is that that's a distortion. That's why this is a disorder. You know, so like just because you think, oh my God, I'm such a loser or like, oh my God, I'm incompetent, does not mean it's true. That's a, that's a, it's a distortion. Anyway, okay. So, but he believes that social anxiety is essentially the fear that that distortion is going to become obvious to everyone around you. And that the distortions yeah, fall right. into one of four buckets. One is appearance. So like I'm fat, my skin is blemished, you know, so, you know, that goes with acne with the teenage years, you know, like my hair is a mess, like I'm not dressed appropriately. So appearance. Second bucket is the signs of social anxiety themselves. So people are gonna see that I'm blushing, that uh, my hands are shaking, that I'm sweating through my shirt, that my voice is quavering. Third bucket is our social skills. People are gonna see that I have nothing to say. People are gonna see that I go blank. People are gonna see that I'm not funny, I'm not cool. And the fourth bucket is kind of our entire personality. It's our whole character. Like, People are going to see that I'm boring, I'm a failure, I'm a loser, I'm incompetent, I'm a yeah, freak, you know, right. fill in the blank. And so we don't have to just, you know, have a stick our finger in one bucket. We, we might have, you know, <laughs> one to all four of those buckets as you know, a whole, exactly, yeah. you know, all, all you can, all you can worry about. Um, <laughs> and it can change, you know, from situation to situation, like, I don't know, somebody who has difficulty using the phone, has phone anxiety, might uh, in that situation, worry, oh, like they're not going to understand me and it's going to get really awkward. Whereas then in class, they might uh, think, oh my gosh, like the teacher's going to call on me and I'm going to give the wrong answer or go blank and everyone's yeah. going to think I'm stupid. So it might be, there, you know, there are different reveals uh, in different situations and also it changes as your stage of life changes. So like for me, you know, I, I have my own history of social anxiety and in college, the, the reveal was, oh my God, everyone's gonna see that like I'm a big loser. And so I would try to compensate by like making sure I was very socially busy. And then when I was starting my career, the reveal morphed into like, people are gonna see that I'm incompetent. And so I like tried to overcompensate, overachieve to make up for this perceived deficit, this, this perceived uh, problem, which I've since learned is, was, a, was a distortion. But, you know, and, it, and so it takes a while to, to learn that, but I did it the hard way. And that's, that's, why, that's why people have this book. They don't have to do it the way I did. That's right. You can do it by filling in the Mad Lib. Yes. And um, there's a step-by-step -step system in here. Um, you also, in addition to the Mad Lib, you have three magic questions. Why are they magic? And <laughs> what are they? Sure. So, um, okay. The technical term for this is cognitive restructuring, which basically just means pushing back on your anxiety. It means like, you know, kind of pulling up the rug 
of your anxiety and shining a bright flashlight under it and saying like, really, is that true? And so, so try to question the, the automatic worries and assumptions. Okay, so let, let me preface this by saying that anxiety is vague. And so, especially with social anxiety, it turns into something like, everyone's gonna hate me or something mm. bad is gonna happen, which is so big yeah. and like really, and then, you know, almost anything happens and we say like, see, I was right. Okay, so right. I, the, the preface is to try to narrow that down and to specify what our feared mm. outcome is. Like, what are we really afraid is gonna happen? Yeah. And that's, that becomes easier to argue with. It's, you know, you can't really push back on this vague, hazy thing, but if you can narrow it down and put it into focus, it is easier to, to argue with. Okay, yeah. that said, so then the magic questions become, how bad would that really be? And that's not a rhetorical question. Like that's, that's not like, it would be fine. You'd, you'd be all right. It's, it, really, it really is a genuine question. Mm. Like how bad would that be? If the, you know, if that feared outcome occurred, if, you know, if, like if, again, I'm calling to, I don't know, order takeout. I realize nobody does that anymore. Everybody orders online, but let's just pretend we're doing that. Okay. And the, for whatever reason, the person who picks up the phone doesn't understand when we go through some awkward exchanges. How bad is that? Would that person remember that five minutes after we hung up? Would it be awkward in the moment? Sure. Does it have yeah. any bearing on our life? No, not none whatsoever. So a lot, once, once we specify the anxiety, a lot of kind of socially anxious, awkward moments fall into, can be refuted in that case. Like how bad would that really be? Like not great, but not terrible. So that's one. Yeah. Another is what are the odds? And this question you can bring out when it really would be bad, when it okay. really would be catastrophic. <laughs> and, but, you know, catastrophes are rare. And so yeah, we can yeah. think to ourselves like, okay, what would have to happen? Like what, what events would have to line up for that feared catastrophic outcome to actually happen? Yeah, yeah. And what are the chances of each of those, you know, things falling in line? So, um, so that we can kind of do the math, you know, if we want to do this in a very left brain nerdy, you know, uh, engineering type way, which I love, by the way, um, we can, we can say, okay, well, maybe there's a 5% chance of, you know, step one happening and a 6% chance of step two, a 50% of st step three. But then if you multiply all those out, like you get this, you know, very, very tiny number. And then you can ask yourself, okay, the chances of my Tinder date climbing out the bathroom window of the restaurant because I'm so hideous and they never want to see me again. That has happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Like that, I won't, I won't lie. Like that's, that's occurred probably, you know, many times in this universe, but it's not probable. It's possible, but not yeah. probable. And is the anxiety that we're putting into this proportional to the chances of that happening? And usually the answer is no. So that's, so what are the odds is another question. And then the third magic question is, how would I cope? And there, that simply prompts us to realize that, again, we can handle these things that the, you know, the, as, as life, you know, throws curveballs at us, we can dodge them, we can catch them, you know, we can, we don't have to just stand by as, like, our social fear comes true, that we can cope either uh, ahead or after the fact. We can reach out to friends, we can soothe ourselves, we can be compassionate, use some self-compassion, that we can handle things and ultimately it'll be okay. 
We're here with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson talking about how to help your teenager be their authentic self. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Here's what I've come to. So perfectionism has high standards. And so maybe you want to reach a certain social standard, a certain academic standard, whatever. It's not the high standard that's a problem. It's that the standards are rigid and arbitrary. Hmm. What I mean by that is that like the rule is the rule. Like it's, you know, it's my way or the highway. Like either I reach this academic standard that I have or I'm stupid or, I, you know, I reach this social standard that I've set or I'm a loser. I always say, don't try to guess, always ask. Anxiety is driven by uncertainty. And so when kids come to me or young adults come to me, oftentimes they have tried to pull one of two levers. One is trying to increase certainty. So trying to make sure nothing goes wrong, trying to make sure that they have it figured out ahead of time, trying to you know plan it out, make sure they don't get revealed. Okay, so, and you know, you can absolutely pull that lever. Sure. But there's another lever that they've often forgotten about, and that is trying to increase their willingness to be uncertain, uh, increase the willingness to, to not have it all figured out ahead of time, that every time right. you interact with, uh, you know, this person that's that you're interested in, like maybe a new relationship, every time you hang out with them, you get 1% more certainty about where this is mm. going. And so having the willingness to gather certainty and comfort more slowly and be willing to kind of surf that wave of uncertainty of not knowing ahead of time how this is going to go. So we will often work a lot on not just trying to increase the certainty, but trying to be more comfortable in that uncertainty. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.